So, uh, now, within, I think it was eight minutes at the town hall, she got the Assad question, which I had tweeted out earlier. Uh, they were probably going to do the Assad question without, within eight and a half minutes. So I was 30 seconds, 30 seconds late. It came eight minutes in. So let's see uh, the Assad question, which obviously the media has painted Tulsi Gabbard as an Assad apologist. Here we go. Congresswoman, you mentioned uh, Syria. We actually have a question on that. I want to bring in Jessica James, a consultant from New Jersey. Thank you. Um, do you remain skeptical, as you were in 2017, that Bashar al-Assad used chemical warfare against Syrian civilians? Uh, I want to correct that, because there's been some misunderstanding. Uh, there have been reports showing that Chemical weapons have been used in Syria, both by the Syrian government as well as different terrorist groups uh, on the ground in Syria. The skepticism and the questions that I raised were very specific around incidents that the Trump administration was trying to use um, as an excuse to launch a U.S. military attack in Syria. Now, I served in a war in Iraq, a war that was launched based on lies and a war that was launched without evidence. And so the American people were duped. So as a soldier, as an American, as a member of Congress, it is my duty and my responsibility to exercise skepticism anytime anyone tries to send our service members into harm's way or use our military to go in and start a new war. May I just ask a follow about that? Because Congresswoman, the Defense Department the United Nations agree that the Assad regime used chemical weapons against its own people. So as president, would you trust the conclusions of your government? Well, like I said, we have in our recent past a situation where our own government told lies to the American people as an ex and to the United Nations, for that matter, to launch a war. So what I'm saying is it is our responsibility to exercise due diligence to ask the tough questions, to get the evidence before we make those very costly decisions about how and when and where our military is used. Where do you even begin? Oh, where do you begin? First of all, first of all, uh, I don't really understand why I've been attacked like this online. I guess I, guess I understand, considering if you dare, dare um, point out Anything negative about Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, the establishment, you're terrible. You're terrible. But shouldn't CNN be telling its audience if uh, a person asking questions to Tulsi Gabbard, specifically on Syria, has ties to President Obama? Like, I've been accused of doxing this person all day on Twitter. But the woman who... Uh, who uh, the woman who just asked the question, her name is Jessica James, and she's a consultant. It's not illegal to be a consultant, but in 2008, she worked for Obama for America's tri-state finance office. Okay, so Obama for America was Obama's official organization. She worked, I guess, in the tri-state area in the finance office. It's not an issue with her asking the question I think Tulsi Gabbard should be asked about her visit to Syria. I asked her about her visit to Syria. But shouldn't, you know, she just says a consultant. They just introduce her as a consultant. Well, isn't it pertinent that the consultant worked for 
then-candidate Obama's campaign, and that uh, President Obama was the one who got the U.S. involved in Syria in the first place. I, as a viewer, would like to know what links the people asking questions have to Obama or a lobbyist. You know, during Bernie's town hall, CNN had a, a young student who was working as an intern for the biggest lobbying firm in all of the United States, in all of Washington, D.C., excuse me, asked Bernie about uh, oh, the sexual harassment allegations on his campaign. So, oh my God, so radical, so radical of me to tweet out. I wasn't attacking this woman. I don't have a problem with her. It doesn't, it's not to say somebody who worked on Obama's organization, worked for Obama's organization, can't ask a question to Tulsi Gabbard. That's not what my tweet was about. My tweet was about, uh, can we just know that the person asking Tulsi Gabbard, and obviously wasn't asking in a way that she was like a major fan of Tulsi Gabbard, has worked for then candidate Obama, the, the very president who got us into this war that Tulsi is trying to get us out of. I don't know why that's radical. And by the way, what Tulsi Gabbard, I think, was trying to say, and she's been attacked for not giving a straight answer on if Assad gassed his own people, well, in 2018, in the attack in Doma in Syria, the United States, Great Britain, all of the politicians, CNN, immediately said this attack in Doma was by the Syria Syrian government, that Assad had gassed his people, and this was uh, an attack by the Syrian government that they gassed their people in Doma. Well, not according, not according to the Organization for the Prohibition on Chemical Weapons, a global chemicals weapons watchdog have released an interim report stating that various chlorinated organic chemicals were found at the site in Syria where a chemical attack is suspected of being carried out in April. A fact-finding mission by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons warned it was too early to come to conclusions about the suspected attack on the town of Doma, saying, quote, work by the team to establish the significance of these results is ongoing. At the same time, the investigators reported, based on initial results, that, quote, no or organophosphorus nerve agents or their degradation products were detected in samples taken from people allegedly exposed in their environment. The OPCW is investigating the suspected April 7th chemical attack on Doma, a town near the Syrian capital of Damascus. The United States, Britain, France blamed Syrian government forces, forces and launched putative airstrikes. Syria denied responsibility. So before inspectors even went in to see what was the chemicals released, the U.S., Great Britain, CNN, the New York Times, the whole gang, the whole gang was saying that Assad gassed his own people. Now, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that Assad hasn't gassed his own people in the past. I think there is evidence that he has gassed his own people in the past. I think there is evidence that Assad is not the United States friend or anybody's friend. I think there is evidence that Assad uh, has done brutal things to his people. But there's also evidence that rebels have released chemicals too. And that's what Tulsi Gabbard was trying to say. 
So because she's not outwardly saying Assad is, uh, you know, gas his people and this and that, maybe because if she becomes president, she wants to try and create a political resolution to end the Syrian war. Paul says, hey, he, he gassed Syrians. However, they are not his people. They hate him. And the point is, the media and, and, and the military-industrial complex, they are very simplistic creatures. They love war, and they love making enemies. So they want her to say, Assad gasses people, Assad gasses people, Assad is a war criminal. Well, what if her, what if her mentality is, well, I don't, wanna, I don't want to say that, because if I become president, I want to work for a diplomatic political resolution to end the Syrian war. So the United States doesn't have troops in perpetuity there. Maybe her mentality as a war veteran, you know, all these people like to talk and criticize, but none of them served in the military. She has two tours in Iraq. So, number one, it's not clear that Assad gasses people in 2018. I think there is evidence he's done it before that. But, oh my God, these people are losing their mind. So Dana Bash, who I thought was very clearly trying to get her to basically just, she was trying to rope her into negative sound bites, uh, short negative sound bites that CNN could play a loop, play on a loop, and Tulsi Gabbard wasn't falling for the bait. Syrian refugees in Jordan, they requested that the first international criminal court case against the Syrian government commence. You met Bashar al-Assad in 2017. Do you believe that Assad is a war criminal? I think that the evidence needs to be gathered, and as I have said before, if there is evidence that he has committed war crimes, he should be prosecuted as such. But you're not sure now? Everything that I have said requires that we take action based on evidence. The evidence is there, there should be accountability. Okay, we're going to get to our next audience question. Uh, it comes- of that, oh my God, I've seen at least two segments already on CNN today. Killing her over the fact that she didn't call him a war criminal. Well, I don't want to I don't want to engage in that awful awful what do they call it? What aboutism? What aboutism? But why doesn't CNN ask Donald Trump uh, or anybody if Maha- Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is a war criminal because he's committing genocide and exterminating half of Yemen. Is he not a war criminal? What about President Obama when he met with the King of Jordan? Nobody was asking uh, Obama at the time, uh, you know, what about you meeting with a war, crom- war criminal? Or, you know, sorry, sorry to uh, dare mention the deceased name, but nobody asked John McCain, hey, you know, what are you doing standing on stage in Ukraine with neo-Nazis in the opposition? I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, do I think should Tulsi Gabbard condemn Assad as a dictator, as a brutal dictator? Yeah, I think she should. And you know what? She has. She said it on The View. She said it in other times. But the, the corporate media is trying to basically make her a war veteran into an Assad toady or like, you know, aiding the terrorists when they are very, very, very fine ignoring all of the brutal dictators, all of the people that the United States has great relationships with that kill innocent children and women, kill innocent people, 
that have gassed their people, for some reason, it's Assad that the corporate media is zeroing in on. No worries about Saudi Arabian dictators. No worry about Jordanian dictators. The corporate media was totally fine with Saddam Hussein, who has gassed his people, by the way, for many, many years. It was only until 9-11 and W. Bush with the microphone, you know, all of a sudden the corporate media hated, hated Assad. Uh, Excuse me, Saddam Hussein. You voted this past week to condemn uh, anti-Semitism and other forms of hate. And this vote, of course, came after your fellow Democratic Congresswoman, Ilan Omar, suggested that support for Israel in Congress is, quote, all about the Benjamins and criticized lawmakers just this past week for supporting Israel as potentially having, quote, allegiance to a foreign country. What do you think about these statements? And do you think this is anti-Semitic? Well, let's look at the bigger issue here. The bigger issue is uh, there's a couple, actually, of, of making sure that as members of Congress and as people in this country, we can have open dialogue about our foreign policy. Um, you know, as, as there are uh, criticisms levied about uh, dual loyalty, again, as I mentioned in the last question, I've been on the, on the receiving end of those types of attacks. So I can understand um, how offensive they can be, where just because I am a Hindu, People assume that, therefore, I must be loyal to some other interest or some other place. But what about these specific statements? You're talking broadly. These specific statements, were they anti-Semitic? There are people who have expressed their offense at these statements. I think that what Congresswoman Omar was trying to get at was a deeper issue related to our foreign policy. And I think there's an important discussion that we have to be able to have openly, even though we may end up disagreeing at the end of it, that we've got to be able to have that openness to have the conversation. But you're not willing to go as far what as I'm saying, saying is, is what she was trying to bring up was, so, I, was something that was, was a deeper issue. Okay. And I don't believe that, she, that her intent was to, to cause any offense to anyone. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. First of all, first of all, I, I'm willing... I'm willing to be wrong on this. I'm willing to be wrong on this. However, I don't think I am wrong on this. Correct me if anybody watched all three town halls. As far as I remember, uh, I don't particularly remember them asking John Delaney about this in his one-hour town hall. And I don't remember them asking um, Pete Buttigieg. I'm never going to get his last name right. I don't recall. I do not recall that. So why is it that they're asking Tulsi Gabbard about this, but not the other two that were airing on the same night? Is it because they were hoping to have a soundbite to use against Tulsi Gabbard? I think so. I think so. So first of all, first of all, if you're going to, if the anchor, not the people, uh, if, if the anchor, not the actual people in the audience, is going to ask questions, they should ask every candidate the same question because... This was a cable news and corporate media created scandal, in my view, this week. Now, uh, I'm talking about, about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Uh, the comment that she did a couple weeks ago on It's All About the Benjamins, I don't think she actually intended to, to you know, they're now using this word trope, 
that I've never heard of, anti-Semitic tropes. I don't actually think that was her intention. I don't think she was trying to make usage of, like, Jews run the world, you know, economically, which is a stereotype. I don't think that's what she was talking about. I think she was talking about, as far as it's all about the Benjamins, that it's all about APAC, APAC and the money that they fund the politicians. That's what I think she was talking about. Um, and I also think that last week when she said, why is it okay that we have a, an allegiance to a foreign government? Uh, I don't, I don't, I think that is worth a discussion. Uh, why in America, uh, you know, automatically, automatically Israel could do no wrong. That's what the media pushes out there, that Israel could do no wrong and that saying anything, questioning anything about Israel is sacrosanct or, 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 or a sin. Well, I've never heard anyone say that if, if we question, you know, Great Britain, which is an ally. I've never heard anyone say that if we question France, which is an ally. So why is it that a politician can't question uh, political decisions in Israel? doesn't mean you're anti-Semitic, but this has been basically the programming. This has been the programming and the spin of the corporate media for a very long time. And the Democratic Party, Democratic Party is essentially very scared to offend um, their donors because honestly, and I'm saying this as a Jew, a lot of the big donors in the Democratic Party and politics in general happen to be Jewish. I mean, sorry, I'm keeping it real. So that's part of why, you know, Israel has been off limits. And I'm Jewish, and my father's very, very Zionistic. He thinks Israel could do no wrong. He loves Netanyahu. He likes Trump. So I love him, but I think he's wrong on a lot of issues. I don't even bother talking to him about Israel because there's no point at this point. But the point is they were trying to get Tulsi Gabbard to say something that they could use as a negative soundbite on a loop. And I think she was right to say, I don't think Congresswoman Omar intended to say anything anti-Semitic. And I think what she said is worthy of a discussion because, you know, you don't, when you say the Pledge of Allegiance, you're not saying the Pledge of Allegiance to Israel. You're saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States. So it's part of the, being a United States citizen. You're allowed to think uh, an ally is making bad decisions. You're allowed to think an ally is treating a good chunk of its citizens, because Arabs are a major population in Israel, in inhumane ways. You're allowed to think that Israel is occupying the Palestinians. You don't have to agree with that viewpoint, but people have the right to think it and say it. This whole bill to, uh, you know, basically make it illegal to, to be part of the boycott sanctions and divestment uh, movement is totally un-American. So I just think if you're going to ask Tulsi Gabbard that question, you should ask John Delaney that question. You should ask Pete Buttigieg that question for sure. Okay, let's get back to the audience. I want to bring in Ray Ellen Smith, who's an accountant and Democratic activist from New Mexico, who says she's planning to run for office Great. in two years. Ray Ellen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, my question is about Medicare for all, something that intrigues, intrigues me quite a bit. My question specifically is, what is your position on Medicare for all and the impact it might have to the insurance industry, thousands of jobs being lost and a potential uh, large segment of, of our economy 
vanishing. Yeah, sure. Thank you for stepping up to run for office when you do. That's an important thing. Uh, I support Medicare for all, and I want to tell you why. It is unacceptable that in our country we pay far more for health care than any other country in the world, yet we have far worse outcomes than any other country in the world. We have to look at why that is, and we have to understand that in this country, it's unacceptable for anyone to be sick and in need of care and not able to get that care simply because they don't have enough money. So Medicare for all, which we are paying uh, right now with the high cost of health care that we are paying, Medicare for all would take out that insurance company that we are writing a big check to every month. And instead, we would be able to lower that cost of health care by taking out that bloated uh, administrative fees and the heavy profits that insurance companies are making on the backs of sick people in this country and instead write that check for Medicare for all. We would have that coverage for everyone. There's a lot of things that we have to look at at what are driving the high cost of health care. So on its own, Medicare for all is not going to solve everything. We have to address uh, the high cost of prescription drugs. Right now, Medicare today still can't negotiate with prescription drug companies to bring down that cost of health care. That has to change. Uh, being able to re-import drugs from places like Canada uh, at a cheaper price is something that we have to be able to do. Uh, focusing on, on preventive health care and trying to make it so that less people are getting sick in the first place is, is a great investment that we can make in this country. So I believe that we have to come at this from a comprehensive uh, approach from a holistic approach as we look to bring down the cost of health care and make sure that everyone who needs that care, who wants that care, is able to, to access it. Can I just uh, drill down on this just to make sure I'm hearing you right? Do you believe that all private insurance should be eliminated? I don't. I think Medicare for all in and of itself by providing that care, that basic level of care, which would include dental and vision to people, uh, would take away that insurance middleman, that high cost that we are paying right now. If people want to go and get private insurance for something else or something that they're not seeing as being fulfilled, then of course they should have the freedom to do that. What, what would that insurance be for? Because, you know, the, the argument is that if you go that far, that the, then the private insurance markets will bottom out. They well, the thing, really the thing is, today, insurance companies are not allowed to... Uh, offer coverage for things that are already covered by Medicare today. So by expanding Medicare for all, this wouldn't change that. If there are other services or other needs that insurance companies see that they have an opportunity to fill and that, that people would want, uh, then, then this is a free country. They'd be able to do that. I actually didn't play that clip because I thought Tulsi Gabbard's answer was like, so great. I mean, I thought her answer was good. Nothing wrong with her answer. I played that to show you the framing from the CNN anchor, because this is what bothers me the most. They're so, so worried about those, those private insurance industry jobs. They're so worried about those private industry jobs. Well, what are you going to do about the pharmaceutical industry? Well, do they ever ask town hall questions, uh, you know, as far as how you're going to pay for the defense budget? And when the anchor or the candidate says something, the anchor, Dana Bet, says, well, you know, but also what about how much money this is going to cost uh, the United States taxpayer? And what about, you know, all the services that are not going to be funded 
because we're spending trillions to go to Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Somalia and Pakistan and Yemen and on and on and go. You see how they ask about how it's going to affect the for-profit pharmaceutical industry? But they never ask. They never worry. They never care how it's going to affect all of those people, all of those industries, all of those services who aren't going to get funding, who aren't going to get resources, who aren't going to get help because we have to spend the money on the military. We have to give the money to Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Northrum Gunthrop. Always say that wrong. Northrum, Northrum Grumman. Very frustrating to me because honestly, yeah, there's going to be a loss of jobs in the, in the pharmaceutical industry. And that's unfortunate. I don't want to sound cold-blooded because there's uh, not everybody that works, uh, uh, you know, the rank-and-file members who work for drug companies or whatever, uh, you know, they're not bad people. But at the end of the day, healthcare should not be a for-profit industry. And what is the greater good? What is the greater good that comes out? Should we worry about, you know, the, the relatively small amount of jobs that will be lost in the private health care industry? Or should we worry about the relatively large amount of people who are now going to have health care? What's more important? But to CNN, yes, loss of jobs, more important than loss of lives. Mick Resister. Mick Resister with the great comment. So I pointed that out to show you CNN never asked that question. Can you imagine CNN during a town hall in 2016 with Lindsey Graham saying, well, what about all of these services? What about all these communities? What about all these children who aren't going to get the funding they need for school, health care, the roads, heating during the winter? I could go on because you want to spend trillions and trillions to bomb every country under, in, on planet Earth. Pisses me off. Pisses me off. Let's get back to the audience. I want to go now to Joseph Jaffe, a marketing consultant from Connecticut. Joseph, aloha. Hello, and thank you for taking my question. I believe the uh, 2020 general election is going to be a single-issue vote, and that single issue is going to be socialism. Mm. Right now, the democratic legacy is being warped and repositioned as a socialist agenda. So, Congress, Congresswoman, my question for you is as follows. How will you counter this perception? Because as they say in marketing, perception is reality. Yeah. And in doing so, restore the democratic ideals to their original truths. Yeah. It's an important question. And we do this by not falling into this trap of labels that is being set and focusing first and foremost on the people. So you can, you can, and people use all kinds of labels to, to name this or to name that. And if you pay attention, you'll notice the only reason they're using those labels is to try to pit one group of us against the other, is to try to tear one part of our country away from the other, to divide us as a nation. This goes against the very principles that our founders had for us as a United States of America. And so it's important for, for this reason and for every other reason why we get into public service to focus first and foremost on serving the people of this country by providing the services and the care, the best care that we can, meeting those needs, working together, bringing the diverse ideas that we have 
to find that best solution, whether those ideas are coming from Democrats or Republicans or independents, taking away all of those barriers and say, how can we best serve? That is our mission. And that's what I'll deliver on as your president. Thank you. Thank you. Congresswoman, I understand what you're saying about labels, but that's how we define and understand where people come from ideologically and philosophically. So what about capitalism? Are you a capitalist? See, here's the thing with all these labels and, and as you said, how they're used to define people and where they're coming from. But as you see, so many of these labels are misused, misunderstood to the point so how would you define where people yourself? don't have any idea what they even mean anymore. So you're not a capitalist. I'm, I'm an independent-minded person. I'm a Democrat. And my sole focus and purpose is to figure out how we can best serve the people of this country. Okay. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So that, to me, was actually the most interesting answer of the evening. And I think so because I have a conspiracy theory. You ready for my conspiracy theory? Isn't it interesting? Tulsi Gabbard, in that answer, kind of sounded like Bernie Sanders a little bit. Bernie Sanders, during his town hall, was asked about, you know, are you explain socialism, explain socialism? And he tried to move away from the label onto what it means. Democratic socialism to me is about human rights. Whereas Tulsi Gabbard tried to also move away from the label to really focus on what it means, uh, bringing people together. And I'm, in, I'm an independent-minded person. And you, the media, is the one that tries to divide people. I think, you want to call me a conspiracy theorist, but it sounds to me like her and Bernie Sanders might have talked about the socialism label at some point. I'm not saying they have, um, you know, arranged to have a similar answer, but it did sound similar to what Bernie Sanders has said because he hasn't bought into the label. I mean, he doesn't shy away from the label of democratic socialism, but he has very, very uh, adeptly and, and successfully, you know, distilled it down to a very basic common sense and thing that people connect to, human rights. And Tulsi Gabbard says, uh, you, you could be with the labels. I'm about being an independent-minded person. I'm about taking things from all parties to come up with the right solution. I think, I don't know, it sounded very uh, similar to the burn. Very similar to the burn. And, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth. After I interviewed Tulsi Gabbard, I spoke with her for a few minutes. I'm not going to get into full details because it was off the record. But I might have insinuated to Tulsi Gabbard, like, you know, don't be so nice all the time. You know, you could, you could, you could give it back to people if you feel like it. I uh, should have given it back to Meghan McCain, in my opinion. But the person that asked that question fundamentally doesn't know what the Democratic Party legacy is. He said, the Democratic Party legacy is being twisted into socialism. Uh, the Democratic Party leg leg legacy is socialism, you fucking idiot. You ever heard of a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Because do you like the United States functioning now? Because it wouldn't have functioned if not for him saving it from, from the Gilded Age politicians. You know, the New Deal was socialism on steroids. Social Security, socialism. Thank FDR for it. 
So I would have liked Tulsi Gabbard. She didn't have to like be mean to the guy, but been like, well, you know, in reality, we already kind of have socialism in this country. We have socialism in this country. And it's working out just fine for the rich. We have socialism for the rich. We do have some socialistic programs that help old, old people and Social Security, Medicare. But by and large, the socialism is for the rich, not the rest of us. So, a couple more. Thank you. Um, can you convince me that your prior positions on gay rights have truly changed? Um, I'm especially concerned about your previous support of conversion therapy, which I find really, really repulsive. And I'd like to understand what caused you to reevaluate your positions and change them. Thank you for your question. I want to correct the record on something that's very important that you raised. Uh, I personally never supported uh, any kind of conversion therapy. I never advocated for conversion therapy. And frankly, I didn't even know what conversion therapy was until just the last few years. Uh, I think it was when I was first running for Congress when someone was asking me about it. The rest of it, she said in the interview with me, she said in other places, explaining how she evolved on LGBT issues. Um, but, you know, listen, I like Tulsi Gabbard, but got to call her out if she's not being completely honest. In that clip, she's not being completely honest. Uh, she full, full-throatedly, full, uh, wrong terminology, full-fledged supported her father's group. I think it was the Alliance for Traditional Marriage, I think it was called. Um, and she publicly supported her father's group uh, and did work for her father's group and her father's group. One of the main things about her father's group, uh, in addition to fighting same-sex marriage, in addition to trying to get things passed in Hawaii uh, to prohibit rights for homosexuals and to cement in law that marriage was between a man and a woman, her father's group that she publicly worked for and supported uh, was for gay conversion therapy. So when she says, I didn't know what gay conversion therapy, I've never personally supported it. I mean, I can't get in her head, but I can say you did support your father's group back then. And your father's group was very, very active in the gay conversion therapy movement. So I like Tulsi Gabbard, but in that one answer, I don't think she's being completely honest, to tell you the truth. Uh, I like the rest of her answer. I like the rest of her answer, which she gave me when we interviewed her. And she said in her video on why she evolved uh, on homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all that. But listen, I mean, you don't, don't, don't pretend you weren't. Don't pretend you didn't know what gay conversion therapy is because that was one of the big parts of your father's group uh, for, you know, being for gay conversion therapy and all that. Uh, that was the only thing that I really had a problem with from this town hall. Uh, but other than that, I, I thought it was good. I'll play this last one uh, because I actually think it was one of the best answers she had. Aloha. Uh, hi. We, as a people, have really benefited greatly from the capacity of science to make predictions about an unknown future. Mm. Climate science predicts that this century we will suffer catastrophic consequences of accelerating global warming. Yet the government's response has been to turn a blind eye. Why does this issue not have more political traction? And with what urgency will you address it if you are elected president? Yeah, thank you. 
You know, before I ran for Congress, I served on our Honolulu City Council, a district that, that is one of the largest city councils in the country, represented close to 100,000 people. And one of the things that we went through uh, in our deliberations and, and bringing in experts and meeting with planners, city planners, uh, was the impact of climate change on our home as an island state. This wasn't some far off theory or some possibility in the next generation uh, that people might have to face. This was in the next 10, 15, 20 years, how much are the sea levels going to rise that are going to start taking over our communities? And we're seeing this now. Uh, there was just a, a resolution passed in Hawaii calling for an emergency because homes and roads are being eroded uh, because of these rising sea levels in the ocean. Uh, so we know how urgent this is, as do many people in this country. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons we can look to to why Washington hasn't taken this more seriously. And I think one of the big ones is the big influence of money in politics, uh, as well as uh, industries like the fossil fuel industry continue, you have high-powered lobbyists who try to block and get in the way of real legislation be passed. But this is something that will require us as people to stand up and make sure that our voices are heard to the leaders of this country to understand the seriousness um, of this threat and how bold action must be taken to protect us, to protect our home and our planet uh, and our future. Uh, yes, there are things in, that we can do in our everyday lives to try to make this change, but this really needs to happen uh, at the national level, and it needs to happen at the global level. Even if we made the kind of change we need to see, the radical change we want to see here in this country to, to completely get off of, of fossil fuels and invest in green economy and sustainable infrastructure and make the kinds of changes we want to see, that still will not have enough of an impact unless we are seeing these kinds of changes also being made in other countries in the world. Uh, this is why it's so important that we have relationships with these other countries that are based on cooperation so that we can talk about how we can protect our environment, how we can protect our future. If we can't have those conversations, then there's no possibility for progress there. So a few things about that that I like. Number one, she hasn't signed on for the Green New Deal. I don't know why. I wish uh, the CNN anchor would have asked her why. Uh, because I think she should sign on to the Green New Deal unless there's something I'm missing about the Green New Deal. However, one of the points she's making that you don't hear other people making is part of the reason that we shouldn't have the new Cold War with Russia, part of the reason we shouldn't be having, you know, building up war with Iran, part of the reason we shouldn't get involved in Venezuela, part of the reason we should get the hell out of Afghanistan, part of the reason we shouldn't be bombing Yemen, this is a global catastrophe not waiting to happen, already happening in real time, climate change. So we need to be able to work with all countries. Well, you can't work with all countries if you're bombing nine countries. can't work with all countries if you're having a nuclear tit-for-tat with Russia. can't work with all countries if you're threatening a coup in Venezuela, which has the largest oil reserves in the world, not so great for climate change. So she's making the connection, well, 
peace is not only in our national security issues, it's in our issues to save the planet. So those are my thoughts on the Tulsi Town Hall. I think overall she did pretty well. I think overall uh, she kept it calm because I think Dana Bash from CNN was trying to rope her in to, you know, some negative sound bites that they could play on a loop. She didn't take the bait. I thought there were questions that Dana Bash asked Tulsi Gabbard that were not asked to John Delaney, that were not asked to Pete Buttigieg. Don't know his last name, how to pronounce it. Uh, like asking about, well, do you think Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is is a, is a anti-Semite? Well, if you're going to ask Tulsi Gabbard, why aren't the other two? Why aren't you asking the other two? She did not sign the Green New Deal because she feels that it is too vague, Sherry Smith. Well, then she needs to come up with her plan, to be honest with you. If she's against it, that's fine, but she has to say, what, what is your plan as president? Because it needs to be as aggressive as the Green New Deal. And if the Green New Deal is too vague, then I would like specifics. I think that's fair. So before we end today, quick, quick Bernie story. Uh, Bernie Sanders campaign had a conference call with reporters today. I was not on the conference call because I was working on something else. I am working on a bit of a story, bit of a story on one Kamala Harris that I think will be of interest to you all. Uh, I'm not ready to not ready to publish it yet, but I'm going to start writing it. And Kamala Harris, let's just say uh, there's some scandal that might be uh, brewing here with what with what uh, Jen and I are finding. So stay tuned for that. But. Bernie's campaign chair had a conference call with reporters. I thought there were some interesting takeaways, so I'll just follow this Twitter uh, exchange. Bernie Sanders campaign manager uh, Faiz Shakir tells reporters on 2020 press call, quote, we are building this campaign to win and playing to win at the early outset. Jeff Weaver, who was his campaign manager in 2016 and is now just a senior advisor, says they are counting on the first five states That would include California, as well as Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada as key to the path to victory for Bernie in 2020. How will Bernie do better with black voters, particularly in South Carolina? Jeff Weaver says more appearances by Bernie, a stronger team on the ground, and much earlier in the process. And Ben Tolchin, who is his pollster, we have a much longer window to tell Bernie's story to introduce him to African-American voters. When will Bernie Sanders release his tax returns? Soon, says his campaign manager. We're working on it. Stay tuned. And Bernie's pollster, uh, Ben Tolchin, notes that in public polling, Sanders is actually doing better in a head-to-head with Trump than any of the announced female candidates. Lots of talk on this 2020 primary map press call about electability versus Trump during a general election. So the thing that actually stood out the most to me from that is Bernie Sanders' campaign seems to, have, seems to be focusing on the first five states which I actually think is pretty smart. Iowa. I think Bernie Sanders at, at the moment is the front runner to win Iowa. We'll see. You know, I'm not gonna play uh, I'm not gonna play the guessing game if Joe Biden's getting in. But honestly, I think Joe Biden is a very similar story to Hillary Clinton, to tell you the truth. If you remember, Hillary Clinton had a very, very high, very, very high approval rating uh, in the time period before when she ended Secretary of State and became a candidate. But when she started running, oh, those favorability ratings went down. And once the media started covering her, they went down. So Joe Biden might be leading, uh, m- might be leading the polls right now 
but he hasn't entered the race. Now, he don't have the critical media coverage that he's going to have, particularly from status coup. So he might be polling high now, but let's see what happens when he gets in the race. I also think Bernie's a known quantity in Iowa. Uh, yes, Biden is. He, he was vice president, but Bernie ran in 2016. So he's already got that. And he has a built-in organizing or organizers already in Iowa and growing. He's got over a million volunteers already nationwide. So I think Bernie could win Iowa. I think he will win New Hampshire, which he's leading in the polls right now. If he wins Iowa, if he wins New Hampshire, that to the media, it's, it obviously doesn't win you the primary by the numbers. But to the media, if you win Iowa and New Hampshire, you're the presumptive nominee at this point. Now, South Carolina, that is going to be extremely tough to win. I think Bernie Sanders uh, can compete in South Carolina, but I think Bernie Sanders has to come in at least second, at least second. Because if he wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, but then gets clobbered in South Carolina, then the narrative is, well, you know, same story as 2016. He, he can't, he, uh, black voters don't like him, even though that narrative isn't true. He's got a 73% favorability rating right now with African-American voters. So I think he could win Iowa. I think he could win New Hampshire. I think he could win Nevada. And then you go to California. I don't know, to tell you the truth. Uh, Kamala Harris is the senator from California. But again, Bernie Sanders is becoming more and more popular nationwide. Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician nationwide. And California was the last primary, one of the last primary states in 2016. So it was a completely different landscape. This time, it's one of the first. So you give Bernie Sanders time to travel up and down California, like more than a year in advance, because he's obviously going to hit California if they're focusing on the first five states. Uh, the country, California is the biggest state in the country. So a, more 18-year-olds voting, more 18-year-old African-Americans, more 18-year-old Latinos, more 18-year-old LGBT, more 18-year-old uh, indigenous, more 18-year-old whites. That plays a big deal. Because a millennial vote is important when it comes to Bernie Sanders. I also think Kamala Harris, there's more dirt underneath that hood. There's more dirt underneath. There's more stuff underneath the hood with Kamala Harris that has not come out yet. So stay tuned. But I think it's possible that Bernie Sanders wins four out of the five first states. I think he's going to, I think he could win Iowa. I think he could win New Hampshire. I think he could win California. And I think he could win Nevada, South Carolina. I think will be tougher. Not out of the question, but tougher. But the diversity at the, at the top of his campaign is already paying dividends because he's already out. He's out polling, by the way. He's out polling Kamala Harris right now among African-American voters. So that's a big, big thing that he's out polling her right now. So we'll see. But I like the fact that they're playing to win. They're talking like he is the front runner rather than an underdog, and I like that. There's a difference between getting cocky. There's a difference between getting cocky and being confident and saying, no, no, we're a serious presidential campaign. We expect to win. We have the polls on our side. We have the enthusiasm on our side. We have the volunteers on our side, and we've got the people power on our side. I like that. 